let's call this meeting to order. And I'll go ahead and take roll call. Einan Lynch, present. Frazier? Present. Uh, Gade? Grimm? Here. Krieger? Murray? Here. Shetty? Here. Silman? Sturdivant? Present. Walter? Here. And staff members, would you like to introduce yourselves? Sarah Gardner? Daniel Bissell? Megan Hill? And next we will get approval of the minutes from the September 11th meeting. This is Chetty, I move to approve. Raise your second. There, there any other discussion on that item or other corrections that need to be made? Oh, and I'll note that Silman is oh. here. Attendance was wrong. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it was dark. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, there was a, I made a note. Um, I think in the packet, it had the little asterisk ne next to Matt Krieger's name saying that he was no longer on the commission. Oh. Um, so that, I think, has already been corrected. In the um, no, I, I, you, mm. you were right. I found the packet, and it is wrong in the packet. It's, it's correct on the next minutes. Okay. It is being corrected. All right. We'll get that corrected. Thank you. Any other changes? Okay. All in favor of approving the September 11th minutes? Aye. 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 Any opposed? The motion passes. Next we have public comment of items not on the agenda. And I don't know if, I will go ahead and read this whole thing, if maybe some of you are from the public. Members of the public who would like to speak regarding items not on the agenda are welcome to address the commission for up to three minutes. Due to public meeting laws, we commissioners cannot engage in discussion or take any action on an item not already listed on the agenda. That means we can listen to your comments, but not comment on or discuss them at this time. Is there anyone from the public who would like to speak? If so, please come up and state your name. I will take that as a no. And we will move on to announcements. Great. Um, so the first announcement comes from uh, the action items from the last meeting, which I have to flip over to take a look at. Um, the first one was that we would include the state of local climate planning report in the annexed agenda packet, which was included, and we're going to touch on that briefly um, in just a minute, and that you, the commissioners, will continue visioning indicators of success in the built environment and transportation since they got rolled together. So, um, as mentioned, uh, the state of the local plan or planning report was included um, at the request of Michael, who I had initially shared it with. And we just wanted to give you a little context around that particular report. Um, we have been participating um, for the last couple years now in a, a consortium of communities that have had long-standing greenhouse gas inventories, folks who've been at it for more than 10 years, as Iowa City has. 
And one of the things that um, these communities are identifying, ourselves included, are the outer limits of the usefulness of the greenhouse gas inventories. Um, as the plan details, those inventories can be really great at showing the initial direction you need to go, but many of the things that we work on um, as a city don't end up showing up in the uh, greenhouse gas inventory themselves. And that's because we're working on such a long time frame and we have, um, it takes a while for all the things we're doing to compound enough to add up to reduced emissions, right? You might recall, in fact, we had touched on this a little with the report that we presented to you earlier in the year where we talked about how greenhouse gas inventories generally are a better compass than speedometer because um, really big regional things you do see having an impact like mid-Americans embrace of wind energy. You know, a lot of the drop we've seen is attributable to that. Now that MidAmerican has achieved 100% renewable energy, we are fully expecting our greenhouse gas inventory to plateau. And that doesn't mean that the work we're doing is not meaningful or impactful. It just means the data is out of scale between the impact of what we're working on and the inventory itself. Um, the other thing that other communities have noted, um, and you saw it in the report if you read it, is that uh, greenhouse gas inventories don't capture things like adaptation efforts, which we all know are important, right? Not just mitigation, but how are we adapting to a hotter and wetter climate? Um, and so we've had some really interesting conversations internally as a result of this report. We've been contributing to um, conversations on the national level among other communities about what we should be looking at. And in fact, the report we brought you at the beginning of the year was our first attempt to start thinking beyond the greenhouse gas inventory toward what's the kind of information that we can be looking at that helps inform decision making. And sometimes um, those things are data points like how many houses have gotten energy, energy audits. And sometimes they're narrative, like what are the kinds of things we're talking about or the events we're sponsoring at Climate Fest, right? It is probably more meaningful, or at least this was our gut sense. It's more meaningful for you as a body to know um, what are the discussions that are happening in Climate Fest than we had eight events, right? That eight doesn't tell you a lot or give you an opportunity to say, well, what if we talked about this or what if we tried that approach? So we're looking ahead um, to future reports and certainly welcome um, suggestions and feedback as to other things we could be looking at. Um, and we're happy to keep you updated as we continue with these discussions. I will say, um, I think myself personally, as a professional working in this field, many of the points that are brought up in that report are valid and very worthy of wrestling with. I don't think it makes sense, that being said, to abandon greenhouse gas inventories entirely. Um, because I think it's important to wear both hats. The hat of somebody who's been looking at this inventory year after year in great detail and understands the limits of it, but also the hat of somebody who frequently works with community members for whom this is the very first time they're looking at something like a greenhouse gas inventory. And I can say from that perspective, 
It is always revelatory when we talk to community members about how only two to three percent of our emissions come from waste. You know, um, it's always revelatory when we talk about how much larger energy usage in our residences contributes to our overall emissions profile than um, the activities of the power plant at the university, right? It still gives us directions to help steer the course. It just not may not be the best measure of the progress we're making or how equitably we're hoping to make that progress. So that's sort of the context around where the report came from and the discussions we've been having as a result of it. Um, I'm quite happy to entertain any questions or if any of you have comments, things that jumped out at you as you were reading it that you thought might be useful, particularly given that we're going to be doing a visioning exercise today. I know last um, month when we met, Michael shared a quote that really leapt out at her. If there are other such things that have leapt out at you, feel free to share them and uh, don't feel like this meeting's your only opportunity. You can always bring it to the table later as well. Is that, is that helpful context for it all? Great. The next few updates are much easier, <laughs> but I do wanna pause. Does anybody have any comments on that before we move on? Okay, great. I will say, incidentally, we are looking to you for help to figure out how are we going to talk about this when we do start plateauing as a community to say we're still making progress even if it's not showing up in this particular measure. So, great. Sure, sure I do. Yeah, yeah. I, like everyone else, uh, continue to be frustrated with the, den the denial crowd. And uh, most of us think that what's happening right now with climate that's obvious around the country or around the world makes it obvious to all. And uh, the frustrating thing is people are digging in and denying more than ever, saying, well, it was like this before. This is really nothing different than 80 years ago or 180 years ago or 380 years ago. So whatever measurements we use, selfishly, I, I like measurements that I can use in my arguments hopefully my reasonable arguments with my friends who uh, just are digging in and don't want to let go of the fact that uh, this is not man-made. Mm. They're, they're accepting the fact there's climate change, but they're still in denial relative to uh, greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. So that's why one reason I don't want to let go of greenhouse gases. It's, it's like surrendering to me. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not an either or, it's a both and or all and. Thank you for that valuable perspective. All right, well, the next two updates are just about upcoming events that you can participate in. Um, this Friday, we are going to have an entry in the university's homecoming parade. We're sending one of our electric buses down the street for it. Um, and commission members are welcome to walk alongside the bus if you would like to. Uh, this year we have committed to not throwing candy or treats or anything to the crowd, so we're gonna try to live our values and not chucking a bunch of future landfill mass out into the street as part of this event. Um, and we have been coordinating with another community group that's going to bring out some electric bikes and electric vehicles 
to be positioned in the parade in front of us. So we're hoping that between the two entries, folks will get to see the range of electric vehicles on the streets today, which is really cool. If anybody would like to participate in that event, um, just let me know. We're going to be mustering around 4.30 p.m. on Friday, and I can get you more details. Um, the other item on here, hopefully you all saw the really exciting announcement go out this month that we have secured a $4 million grant from the EPA to expand our composting operations. Um, we're going to have an official unveiling where um, we'll be bringing in um, some of the elected officials who helped us get over that threshold to win that award. You are all welcome to attend. The details are still being ironed out. It's going to be sometime in early November. We think November 8th, might be November 13th. Um, we'll for sure let you know ahead of the next meeting, but uh, just because we know sometimes it helps to block off some time on your calendar, we wanted to give you an early heads up on that one. Great. Unfinished and ongoing business. So next up, we have, uh, we managed to succeed to getting back to the quarterly reports on the climate action and adaptation plan after a very busy spring where you ended up getting a six month report. Um, and as we've done in previous months, I wanna pause for just a couple minutes and give you a chance to read through that summary update. And then um, if you would offer up any that you'd like to hear about in more detail or any questions you have about any of the items on that list, we're quite happy to entertain those questions. This is Shetty. I have a question on uh, how the meeting went to discuss community-based solar. That was a very interesting opportunity. We went, so this is um, referring to Des Moines. We went down to talk with the um, Iowa Energy Office, um, in part, I will say, out of recognition that they tend to have a pretty good understanding of what's happening in and around Des Moines, and the further out you get from there, the fuzzier it gets. Um, so we had gone out to discuss initially the Hira and Holmes rebates with them, and then we began talking about the community or the Solar for All grant that the state is applying for. Um, one of the, I think, better, better depending on how you look at it, better outcomes of that discussion is um, we raised the point that currently under Mid Americans tariffs, we can't have a community solar program here. Um, and that apparently came as uh, a bit of a surprise to those staff. So we have been following up with them. We've also been in conversation um, with Wynn's counterpart about a memo that we could send their way so they understand exactly what the hurdles might be. Um, and our intention in these conversations is to continue to advocate for the community to make sure that 
um, were the state to be awarded a solar for all grant, our residents would be able to participate in that the same way residents in any other part of the state would be able to. Um, so our intention is not to call anyone out or cause any embarrassment, but to remove those hurdles. Um, and the nice thing is that, of course, dovetails with one of the action items currently in our climate action plan, which is to advocate for community solar programs. Um, and hopefully, with this additional funding coming down the pike, um, that will change or just make some conversations possible that weren't before. So thank you very much for asking about that one. There are no further questions. We can move on. Does, are there no further questions? I do have another question. Congratulations on the $4 million grant to expand the composting facility. I was wondering if that also includes uh, equipment to help with composting, because I know that there's a lot of smaller scale equipment out there. Mm -hmm. And maybe larger scale equipment could help process it faster so that we won't continue the need for expansion. Um, actually, I will say I can give you a very high-level response, and I'll just note that next month, Jen Jordan, who is our landfill superintendent, will be joining us for the meeting, and she can speak about it in more detail. And I will say she did the lion's share of the work in securing that grant, so um, she'll be very excited to hear that you were all excited about it. The grant's going to cover a number of things. Um, first, it's going to allow us to resurface the current pad that the compost uh, facility operates on. It was not originally designed for compost operations, so this will just help us bring it up to its standards of where it should be. Um, we're also going to expand it by two acres. Um, and I think in this regard, it's important to remember that the landfill serves not just Iowa City, even though we own it, but it serves the entire county. Um, so uh, expanding it um, will help us, our hope is, you know, encourage commercial uh, composting, as we've talked about, um, maybe allow for other communities to participate. I think it just opens up a lot of possibilities that aren't available to us right now. And yes, there is uh, some of that money that is earmarked for um, equipment upgrades. Um, the exact nature of those, I can't speak to, but Jen could. So I'd say earmark that question and bring it back next month. I'm hoping there are no questions because there's just so much going on, it's hard to know even where to start. That is certainly how I feel every time it comes time to type these up. Uh, one, one last uh comment, not a question. I, I see two things that are challenges for us. The things we're doing, and that's kind of what we're talking about. 
as opposed to though they work together, how we communicate the things we're doing. Because again, the politics of this bother me as much or more than anything. Looking down the road uh, two years, four years, eight years, we just can't allow people to be in denial. And so one of our biggest jobs as a commission, I think, is to help in any way we can with the public relations aspect of this. We've got to be able to explain the what we're doing related to why we're doing it and the hopeful outcomes of that that are meaningful to people. And right now, very little is meaningful to anyone. They're all focused on crazy things. And we've got to get the focus back to this. And I don't hear it. I don't hear it being discussed nationally right now, which I think is very unfortunate. And there's so many distractions that uh, I want to do anything I can from a communication standpoint to just keep yelling fire. Mm -hmm. I know that's not a nice thing to do, but uh, we need to do it in an intelligent fashion that makes us look and smart and not just reactionary. So anything you can aim us toward, aim me toward, that allows me to do a better job of communicating the why mm -hmm. and a little bit more evidence of why we're doing what we're doing as being meaningful to people, not, not just six generations from now, but immediately back to the ROI. What's in it for me, the return on investment? This is scary stuff right now to me with all the distractions. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be more optimistic, but that's, that's what I wake up thinking about. And uh, as, as you know, probably I just came back from a second trip to Africa and uh, Great Britain. And in many ways, some of those countries are more proactive than we are because they're, uh, they're, they're doing a better sales job with their audiences of getting uh, bipartisan, if you will, buy-in. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I don't see the bipartisan portion here at, at all. And I don't know what to do about it. So if you can help me with that, help us with that. Maybe I'm the only one that feels that way, but uh, I just don't feel like I can do what I thought I could do when I came on this commission a number of years ago before we were a commission. No one's paying attention. You know, in some ways, I think this, this comment and this question parallels some of the conversations we've been having around the greenhouse gas inventory. Um, one of the reasons these conversations are happening among cities is there are a number of different ways to calculate a greenhouse gas inventory. Um, they all use estimates to some degree. They're, they all capture some things better than other things. And what you're starting to see is some arguments about which ones are the most appropriate for cities to use. Um, and even I think the larger argument is that the, the greenhouse gas inventories are, some, are a very useful tale, uh, or tool on the national level, and they get a little less useful the further down you go. Um, but in one of the recent conversations, um, one of the other cities, one of our peer cities, um, started talking about how all this quibbling over numbers is counterproductive, right? Saying 
how, how do we identify every last source and account for every last little carbon atom? It in many ways overcomplicates the discussion, right? If it eliminates or reduces the use of fossil fuels, then that's what we need to be doing, and we need to be doing it on all fronts, right? And we know what those things are, even if we can't attach an exact number to it right now or say, if we do this activity, it's going to result in this much reduction. Like, in many ways, we don't have time to argue over it, right? We need to be doing. And the doing and the success of the doing are the things that ultimately convince others that it can be done and it's worth supporting. So um, in some ways, I don't, I don't know that... I or anybody is wise enough to have all the answers to your really important question, John. But I think um, actions speak louder than words. And I think I'm very proud to work for a community that is so committed to action. I was going to say, on the facility side, we run into that, you know, within the school district where people aren't going to listen to logic or numbers or whatever. And so we turn it into a moral conversation and leaving a place better than what you received it and, and that's how we kind of drive things whenever possible and that kind of helps us navigate some of that to some degree maybe not solve all the problems of some of the hard-headed people out there but it certainly helps with those people that are operating off of hearsay and stuff and so so we always kind of adopted the language of we're doing the right thing and sticking to that as much as possible and also the conversation we're going to have later today about visioning. Like, what is the kind of community we want to live in in the future? What does it look like? I'm pretty sure what it doesn't look like is on fire or underwater <laughs> or choking in smog, right? I mean, you could shock me. Somebody could suggest that. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not going to factor in. You know, And as we talk about what we want the community to look like, that I think in some ways sidestep some of the partisan issues or things that have become wrongfully partisan because I think, you know, we all ultimately want to live in a place it sounds reductive, but we want to live in a place you want to live in, right? A place where you can live a full, connected human life and you know, feel secure, not just for your future, but the future of your children and grandchildren. That might be putting my thumb on the scale of visioning exercise, so I'm going to not say anything else. My picture of a world on fire that I was going for. <laughs> <laughs> this is Sturdivant. Um, regarding the expansion for that, it kind of goes to what John was saying. Other communities can participate in that. Are we reaching out? Well, I think we have to build the facility first, but I, it would not surprise me at all if Jen Jordan isn't already in conversation. I, I was going to say this might be a Jen question. but yeah, yeah, yeah. I would for sure ask her. I mean, I won't be here next month, so grill her all you want. <laughs> all right. Shall we move on? Great. Um, well, the next item on the agenda is uh, Kent Ralston, who's here today from the Metropolitan Planning Organization of Johnson County. They do the transportation planning, not just for Iowa City, but for the region. Um, and he's here to talk a little about what that looks like in his office and answer any questions you might have as we think ahead to visioning for the built and trans environment and transportation network. Yeah, hi everyone, thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate your time. My name is Kent Ralston. Uh, I'm the City of Iowa City's Transportation Planner as well as the Director of the Local Metropolitan Planning Organization. 
Um, next slide, please, Sarah. So I've got just about, I've just got a handful of slides here to keep myself on track. Shouldn't take more than about 20 minutes or so. Uh, real quickly, um, how many of you all know what a metropolitan planning organization is? Or have you heard of our metropolitan planning organization? Several of you, okay, that's about the response I usually get. Uh, we joke in our office that we're the most important organization you've never heard of, so this will help my presentation for today. Uh, topics to cover real quickly, uh, I'll talk just a little bit about what a metropolitan planning organization is and does. I'll talk a little bit about ours, and then I'll shift the focus a little bit to what we do uh, in our transportation planning jobs here at Iowa City, since I know that's the uh, focus of this commission. Uh, next slide, please. So most importantly, uh, a metropolitan planning organization is a federally mandated transportation programming and policy making organization. So that happened uh, here in about 1982 for Iowa City. Uh, when Iowa City reached 50,000 uh, in population, that's what triggers the need for a metropolitan planning organization. Um, we're best known for channeling federal funding for transportation projects and programs to local entities. Uh, we have about four different funding streams that I'll uh, talk about here in just a minute. Um, and we're best probably known for those funds. Uh, that's what gets the elected officials most excited, of course, and, and what uh, usually hits the papers. Uh, metropolitan planning organizations ensure that expenditures of scarce federal funds for transportation projects and programs are based on local planning process. So as you can imagine, uh, when you're receiving federal funds, we have a lot of federal documents we have to go through. Um, several of those are pretty important to us, and I'll mention just a few here in a moment. Um, next slide, please, Sarah. Uh, so generally, a metropolitan planning organization in its simplest form facilitates collaboration between governments, interested parties, uh, and residents, as you can imagine. Uh, we foster cooperation on transportation infrastructure planning and other locally determined issues intended to reflect the region's shared vision for its future. Uh, we do that primarily through what we call our long-range transportation plan. Uh, I'll talk about it here in a minute, um, but for those that are uh, familiar with a city's comprehensive plan, it's basically that same thing. It's basically your shared uh, vision for, in, in a comprehensive plan uh, terms, it's for a city, for us it's the region. Um, we also provide continuing analysis of short-term and longer-term transportation projects. So this is really our, the bulk of our day-to-day -day work, and I have sort of a laundry list here and a slide or two of what we do for Iowa City. Um, but primarily in the spring, we're working on federal requirements, and the rest of the year, we're really working on transportation planning projects, uh, and there's a whole wide range of those. Uh, and then lastly on the slide, uh, allocating scarce federal uh, and other transportation funding resources to achieve those uh, shared visions, uh, values, and goals for the community. Next slide, please. So now that you've uh, kind of got a, a feel for what an MPO is generally, just a little bit about ours. So we are one of nine MPOs in the state. Um, and it's, this isn't ultra important, but the, the colored portion of that map is, as you know it, it's North Liberty, Coralville, Tiffin, University Heights, and the city of Iowa City. Uh, the MPO covers that area. We also cover the rest of Johnson County. Um, we do a little bit of planning work for some of the smaller communities around Johnson County, but primarily it's for the urban area. That's where most of the vehicles are, that's where the pedestrians are, the bikes. Uh, and also the checkered line on the map actually identifies the area by which we can spend our federal funding. Uh, so that's the importance of that. It's primarily driven by a 20 to 30 year growth boundary for the communities, uh, which in turn is driven by primarily the area that they can sewer uh, by gravity. So that's sort of the, the way this is, uh, comes to be. Um, through a 28E agreement, we're actually housed here in Iowa City, so folks can't tell the difference between MPO staff and any other Iowa City staff. In fact, I share a wall with uh, Sarah here. Um, but 
unlike some of them, we are here in Iowa City, or excuse me, unlike some MPOs that are on their own, we're here in Iowa City, uh, which helps us share expenditures for um, internet tech, or uh, IT, uh, attorney's office, uh, HR, and the like, uh, vehicle pools and such. So it's just an efficient way for us to operate. Uh, I usually tell people for the second bullet, we specialize in transportation planning, traffic engineering, grant writing, and land use planning. I usually tell folks about 90 to 95% of what we do is more in that transportation planning, traffic engineering realm. Uh, but we do get into a little bit of land use planning and have a, uh, a former land use planner uh, on our staff. So for University Heights, for instance, uh, they don't have staff, generally speaking, so we will provide some land use planning uh, for University Heights. Uh, I have here at the last bullet, uh, we also provide a forum for regional issues such as affordable housing and environmental policies. <clears throat> We're really getting more and more away from that, not on our end of things, just by what our board is asking us to do. Um, we act, our board is uh, comprised of 15 members of elected officials from the other communities, so city council members. Uh, and for Iowa City, we have all six city council members uh, except for the mayor. The mayor does not sit on our board. Um, we helped with the affordable housing market analysis for Iowa City a few years ago. Uh, we were involved in some aquifer issues 10 or 15 years ago, but really, like I say, we've just gotten away from this a little bit uh, just by way of what our board's asking us to do. Uh, next slide, please. So I had mentioned this earlier. Uh, ultimately, the role of the, the MPOs in general, but ours in particular, is to funnel federal and state transportation funds to projects and programs throughout this continuing process that we're talking about. Um, probably what we're known for most, as I mentioned earlier, by elected officials is sort of this first uh, few bullet points. Um, we appropriate about 10 plus million dollars in our surface transportation block grant and transportation alternative program funds every uh, other year through a competitive grant application process. Uh, we also appropriate about four and a half million dollars in public transit operating funds uh, to Iowa City Transit, Coralville Transit, as well as University of Iowa Canbus uh, annually. And uh, just recently, due to the COVID uh, relief funds that were, that were released, we have about an additional $17 million we're helping those three agencies administer as well, uh, the three public transit agencies. Um, and interesting for this group, we also have a new funding stream that's somewhere around three dollars to $400,000 a year called Carbon Reduction Program Funds. Uh, that was part of the last bipartisan infrastructure bill. So those are new to us, and as far as we know, they're here to stay. Then the last bullet point we already talked about a little bit, um, but this is probably what our local practitioners know us for, engineers, uh, of course, planners and the like, is the majority of our day-to-day -day work is oriented towards uh, smaller projects. And I wanted to, on the next slide, just guide you through just a few of the uh, recent documents that, that help us do this. The first is the long-range transportation plan, which we already talked about just a little bit. Um, it articulates the long-range plans and community vision for transportation improvements for all modes, uh, basically like 30 years into the future. And the importance of this to communities are that if your infrastructure projects are not in the long-range plan, they then cannot be funded through our organization. So uh, we go through this process every five years as required. And it's a difficult process to ask communities, you know, what do you want to spend uh, transportation dollars on in the next five years? But uh, we get to that through uh, a lot, a lot of meetings um, and a ton of public involvement as well. Um, in the long range plan, I actually brought a copy if anybody wants to look through it, I can pass it around later, but it includes things like a regional context, uh, it has their guiding principles uh, in it as well. Uh, and then it has sections for roads, bridges, trails, uh, bike and pet infrastructure, transit, aviation and the like. 
Uh, and all that's sort of done through this lens for, in Iowa City at least, for the strategic plan for the council, and that mobility is one of their strategic planning goals and making sure we're looking at all modes of transportation. Uh, the second bullet point is the Iowa City Bicycle Master Plan. Uh, this is one we were really proud of. It was adopted uh, in 2017, which it only seems like it was a few years ago to me. Uh, but it provides a set of prioritized bike infrastructure projects and information related to education, enforcement, encouragement, and evaluation, which are what we call the five E's. Um, and I am happy to say that I think we've got probably 90 to 95% of the goals that are in the bike master plan completed. Uh, and in the next year or two, I'll probably be approaching the Iowa City Council and asking for us to either update that or uh, have a complete new bike master plan created, because I think that's to the point where we're at. Uh, another thing we do are pedestrian and vehicle collision analyses, uh, which provides detail in areas of concern and provides guidance on where best to invest resources, as you can imagine. And in fact, tomorrow night at the City Council's work session, we'll be running through our pedestrian uh, collision analysis uh, that we just put together this spring that basically takes a snapshot of about the last 10 years of pedestrian collisions in Iowa City. And I'm happy to report we're doing pretty well. Uh, we're doing better than anyone else in Iowa uh, with respect to how many pedestrians we have and how many vehicles we have. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, these next few slides, I won't spend a ton of time on. I just wanted to sort of focus on a little bit of what we do for Iowa City. Um, some of these things we do for the other communities, but some are specific to Iowa City, and just give you kind of a flavor of, of what it is that we do here in our office. Uh, first and foremost, and again, this is all through the lens of the, the council strategic plan goal of uh, making sure that all folks can get all places safely and conveniently. Uh, we review subdivision and development plans, so any new subdivision or development that's going to occur in town, we actually review the plats and make sure that we've got the infrastructure we need for all the different modes. Uh, we assist with grant applications, uh, either for our own purposes or for others throughout City Hall that, uh, that require our help. Uh, we assist with comprehensive plan updates, so I already mentioned our long-range plan is akin to a comprehensive plan. So when other communities, uh, and this is MPO-wide, but when other communities are working on their comprehensive plans, we'll help them with their transportation planning and, and uh, related materials. Uh, then getting into some more of the traffic engineering type work we do, uh, we conduct traffic signal studies, signal timing evaluations, and intersection level service analysis. This is what it tells us uh, the type of intersection we need. So if it's a retrofit or a new subdivision, if we need a roundabout, traffic signal, an always stop, a two-way stop, that sort of thing. Um, and then we conduct speed studies and manage traffic calming, uh, the, tra the Iowa City traffic calming program as well. Next slide, please, Sarah. Uh, finishing out this sort of laundry list of projects, or excuse me, of uh, things we do in our office. Uh, we manage on-street parking requests and signage, uh, traffic control signage and respond to resident concerns, uh, pavement markings, locations, and requests. Uh, we plan on coordinating bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure, which we've already talked about uh, a little bit. And then we assist Iowa City Transit with uh, uh, their route data planning and federal reporting requirements, which is a big, uh, a big thing for us in our office. And then lastly, we even conduct uh, traffic forecasting and maintain the Iowa DOT travel demand model in our office. So we can, to the best of our abilities, look uh, forward 20 or 30 years and actually try and figure out where uh, traffic will be. And that helps us invest our resources in the right uh, places. And then, of course, also provide the kind of resource we're going to need, whether it's a two-lane road, three-lane, four-lane, that sort of thing. Um, which also helps uh, ensure that we're being environmentally friendly, which is uh, a big thing in our office as well. Uh, next slide, please, Sarah. So as far as our division staff, uh, I already introduced myself. I'm responsible for all the administrative duties of the MPO uh, and then the transportation planning work as well for Iowa City. Uh, we have a senior planner, Emily Bothell, that is our primary contact for traffic-related uh, studies, sort of that more um, 
the traffic engineering type stuff, the traffic signal analysis, the speed analysis, that sort of thing. Uh, Sarah Walls, uh, some of you may know through her bike and pedestrian planning work that she does in our office. Uh, Tunazina Alam is our primary contact for GIS work and mapping. And then Hannah Neal is our uh, contact for transit grant administration and also helps us put together our uh, transportation improvement program, which is where we program the actual projects that receive federal funds. Um, with that, I know I threw a lot at you very quickly. I just wanted to sort of give you a flavor of what we do and then probably more importantly ask how our division can be of help to you all uh, or if there's any information we can provide to you all for the work that the commission does. I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. We are doing the type of work you think you would do in a transportation planning office. That's usually what I tell folks. You sure. say you do a plan every five years. Mm -hmm. is, is that like um, a company's five-year plan where they really review it every year and look out another five years? Or do you literally wait five years? I can't imagine that you do. You're constantly looking at it and evaluating. We are. So I think it, as far as the federal government's concerned, we're just looking at it every five years for the most part. Um, we amend, we have to go in and amend the plan. So this is our long range plan, probably, I would say three or four times a year based on projects that aren't in the plan that should be. As I mentioned, you've got to have your project our plan to receive federal funds um, and just the things that might change. So we, we go in there probably three or four times a year to actually make amendments and make updates to it. Um, sadly, we don't do a whole lot with it four or five years, to be honest. Um, it's one of it's a living document i mean we're, we're all, we know things that have changed within it and we're talking about those things with our policy board um but the amendment process is pretty difficult because it has to make its way through the federal transit administration the federal highway administration so it's kind of a painful process so we try to keep the amendments to a minimum um if that answers your question so the first thing i thought about when you said that was uh, evs and uh, you know, what are your predictions for EVs in five years as opposed to four years, three years, two years? And by the way, the electric buses are amazing. And uh, I'm, I'm hearing from people outside the community, they can't believe that uh, we're doing what we're doing with the electric buses and uh, people riding for free. They think that's really progressive and just amazing. Yeah, I agree 100%. I can't take credit for the electric buses other than some of the funding that helped get them here. Um, but yeah, as far as EVs, I, uh, I've been a, I've probably been a bit of a, um, I've been a little bit sarcastic about it, I think, only because we talk about it a lot with our federal partners. You know, what are we going to do for EV? How are we going to plan ahead? But the way we're still building things looks about the same as it always has. So I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit hesitant to make a prediction, but, um, you know, five, 10 years ago in our literature, it's the same stuff you're all probably seeing. You know, electric vehicles were gonna take over the world. 80% of the vehicles on the road today were gonna be electric vehicles, all these things. And I've been a little bit more hesitant with my predictions, but um, clearly it's the wave of the future and, and we'll see what happens. Well, this is kind of where politics comes in because I still remember back in the Paris Accord days that Governor Brown of California basically said, legislation leads uh, the technical uh, technology, the right. technical changes, um, rather than waiting for the technical changes to occur when we have to at the very last second. Yep. And it's just charging stations. I'm probably, I'm, I'm thinking, you're thinking about charging stations every every minute. 
Yep, we actually sit, so I actually sat on the DOTs. Um, they had a, com a committee put together to do this and they actually, they actually published a document that helps planners plan for these things, right? So because we have all these questions about, well, when's it gonna be and, and how do we sort of make the leap to get there? You know, do we put in one charging station per every 20 parking stalls? Should we be doing that for every 40 parking stalls? You know, there's just, there's a lot of guidance, but there's no real, um, nothing we could latch onto, I think, here locally. So the DOT actually put together a, a publication a while back to help planners plan for these things, you know, just in, in terms of sort of high, medium, low. So low level things uh, would be considerations, medium level things are things you really should be doing. And then there's some high level things in there as well um, uh, that they recommend. So it's been, it's been helpful, but I don't think anybody knows more than anybody else in this room, to be honest. But do you see legislation paying a, um playing a major role in what the EV future looks like? I mean, when it's legislated that yeah. you're going to do it, duh. Yeah, I would say yes. I mean, I, yes, I would agree with that statement. And I don't see it being legislated because it's such a political hot yeah. potato. Yeah, I agree with that. I've been uninvited to a Thanksgiving dinner because of my <laughs> view on this, but I've got some relatives that, uh, my wife's relatives, I might add. <laughs> that are saying that Biden should be shot for his position on electric vehicles. And uh, once he's out of there, then we won't have to worry about that anymore. And that's the sort of stuff that's so frustrating to me. The politics involved in what you do, I mean, they can't be separated from what you do. Well, it's not legislation so much, but, you know, you mentioned the electric buses. Had it not been for the, the city council, we probably would not have electric buses today. You know, I'm not sure if, our, I'm not sure if, if we would have got that far that fast just with staff pushing for them. But when the city council wants them, when those commissions are recommending things to them, it gets things done a lot quicker. Not legislation so much, but at least the, the politics of it. I just want to point out uh, something that's been fun and just much discussed in our office this morning is that uh, this year's Barbie mobile is an EV and comes with its own EV charger, which seems like <laughs> a fun indicator of how the cultural ties are turn tides are turning on that particular issue. I have a question. Sure. Uh, my name's Michelle Solman, and I was just wondering, are you, and I'm sure you are, putting more um, EV chargers in the plans for public parking spaces? I mean, is that part of what you do? So so I, I kind of skipped around your your question a little bit, too. I, we don't, as far as the MPO and transportation planning work, we don't deal with that a whole lot, to be honest. I mean, that really falls into more with, like, Sarah's work and her team and then the, the transportation office. So... Um, I don't manage the parking ramps. I certainly help in some of the conversations, but yeah, I don't really get involved in that level of detail, which is why I kind of skipped around your question a little bit too. Um, so like if you're doing grants and stuff, that wouldn't be? We can help with those. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, so Darian Negelgam's the, the Transportation Services Director. I mean, she, she used to work in our office, so we're pretty, we've got a good working relationship, but um, we, would, we would certainly help them if they asked. Uh, in the last three or four uh, grants that they've written for the new transit facility, um, which they wrote year in and year out until we finally got awarded some funding, um, Darian didn't ask for a whole lot of help with those, so we help when we can. I had a couple of questions. You had mentioned, I can't remember specifically the grants earlier. Is there sustainability kind of guidelines that are included in those grants that kind of ensure that the funds are going towards sustainable efforts versus 
So I think the answer is no. So for our surface transportation block grant funds, our transportation alternative program funds, and then these new uh, carbon reduction program funds, there really isn't a lot of, um, there are a lot of rules with how we have to spend those. But I will say that we make our own rules, and that's sort of how the federal government sets this up. So um, we actually have, and I thought, I thought someone might ask this question, so I actually brought our scoring criteria. So our federal funding is competitive, so we actually have our own uh, competitive grant application cycle. So that would be, it sort of flips things on the head where instead of us writing grants, folks are actually from the different communities writing grants, applications essentially to our, our group for the grant funding. Um, and in our criteria, they've been purposefully kept simple. There's about 10 to 12 different questions depending on the type of funding. But I would say about half of these have to do with sustainability, environmental issues, and that sort of thing. Um, we've got an environmental uh, criteria where you get, and this is higher score, the better type of uh, scoring criteria, where if the project promotes air quality improvements, uh, either through congestion reduction or geometric improvements, uh, reduction of vehicle miles traveled, that sort of thing, you get more points. Um, we have quality of life criteria where if your project is adjacent to multifamily uh, buildings and that sort of thing, you get more points. Uh, the assumption being that that's better for more people, you don't have to travel so far. Uh, system preservation, you get more points for maintaining or improving an existing facility over building a new one. So instead of building a new sidewalk, trail, or road, uh, in this case, you'd actually get more points if you're maintaining or upgrading what we already have um, for system preservation. Um, we have some efficiency points where if you are in a corridor, so this is a vehicular corridor with congestion, you actually get more points if your project shows that you can reduce congestion um, and therefore reduce emissions. Uh, let's see, we get more points if you're on a bus route, if, it's, if it adds a sidewalk or a trail, those sorts of things. Um, if it extends a regional trail network or part of the trail network, I think that may be it, but I, I, I would say of about the 10 or 12 questions, about half of them I would say have an environmental um, sort of focus to them. And these, these, this criteria was something that was developed by our technical committee and then approved by our policy board. And it's been tweaked over the years a little bit, but if anything, it's been tweaked more towards sustainability and environment than, than the opposite. So to clarify, that would apply to all the different cities that you're assisting, Correct. right? Correct. So. so these are the MPO funds, right? So any North Liberty, Coralville, Iowa City, Tiffin, University Heights. Um, Johnson County, again, within that checkered area on the map we looked at earlier, if, if you're applying for funds um, in those areas, then you'll have to run through the scoring criteria, correct? So one more question. Like, mm -hmm. So we have um, um, lots of words here. So we, we have the, the city. I'm used to work for a school district, so I'm trying to wrap my head around it. We have the city plan, right, climate action plan within Iowa City. Does that in any way have a positive influence to maybe those smaller communities that don't necessarily have that plan? Does that influence how you do your work in a positive way? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, it certainly does for the Iowa, Iowa City specific work. Um, insofar as that myself and our staff educate ourselves with, you know, tr trying to educate ourselves and ask their questions about what would be helpful to climate because this isn't, you know, this isn't my uh, area of expertise. I think insofar as it helps educate us, I think it probably helps. I don't know if Coralville and North Liberty look at that plan and say, okay, this is important to us even though we don't have a plan and therefore it informs what we're doing. I, I guess I would probably say it doesn't, but it, it can't hurt. Sure. It's probably as good as the answers I can give. Yeah.
Do you do traffic and pedestrian studies on the University of Iowa campus also? Uh, the University of Iowa actually does have a member that sits on our board, and they, they can apply for our funds. Um, so anyway, they are a part of the organization, and we do help them when, when asked. Okay. Um, you know, we, it, I basically describe it to folks that don't understand uh, an MPO or aren't familiar with our organization, that we're basically like consultants. Uh, all the different groups pay into our organization. So Coralville, North Liberty, Iowa City, and the University of Iowa are paying into our, our organization. But we usually are more retro or reactive in what we do. So if they come and ask us for that help, we'll do it. Uh, otherwise, we won't. And we put together a work program every year that actually has all the different projects we work on. Uh, we actually solicit for projects, and that helps us uh, gauge our time. But yeah, we do help the university. And we do... Uh, more than bike and ped counts and that sort of thing, we do more uh, traffic analysis for them than anything, probably. Yeah, I think that would be really helpful for some of the building projects they have. So, yeah. yeah. Yep. This is Sturdivant. I have a question relating to that. When you're doing these studies, mm -hmm. are, are you sitting on the corner counting people, or what's the process for doing that look like? Yeah, so pretty much everything we do is data-driven, as you can imagine, and we have interns that actually sit on corners with counters and count vehicles, yep. We also have automated counters. Um, we have some radar counters that we can actually put on, uh, like, post mount that will uh, count speed and volume of four lanes, so across four lanes of traffic. And then we have magnetic counters that are about the size of a, like a sheet of paper. It looks like a basically a little laptop that we are actually these tape black down. Squares? Uh huh. Okay. So you'll see when we pull those up, it usually yeah. leaves the little square on it. We kind of do that on purpose so we can see where we've been, because mm. um, in case we want to recount a few years later. But yeah, it's uh, basically like a laptop that sits in the roadway and actually counts uh, number of vehicles and speed, and actually classifies vehicles by length and size and that sort of thing. Yep. And I actually, and to get back to your question too. Um, for my Iowa City part of my job, I sit on the university's campus planning committee as the liaison through Iowa City. So we're pretty familiar with what they're doing with their developments and, and that sort of thing. Yep. I, have, I have a hopefully quick question. So if the university wanted to um, put in EV charging stations in their parking lots, they could apply for a grant through the MYPO? Yeah, they could. Yep. Now, I don't know... They, they could. The MPO, they've never been successful in getting funding through the MPO, I'll say that. Oh. Um, doesn't mean they can't, but I think our policy board has always looked at it as though the university has their own funding streams and don't necessarily need our funding. Um, but that said, my guess is it would fit in the carbon reduction program uh, funding pool the best. But yes, they could. They could apply for funds. Is that true of school districts as well then probably? It is not for the school district. Okay. Yeah, school districts are not eligible. Yep. This is Ivan Lynch. Um, not sure how to ask my question. Uh, if we have, say, an overall need to like reduce traffic and just the number of cars on the road, you know, we are still doing, you mentioned earlier, like we're still kind of building the way we always used to, and I'm not sure exactly what you meant by that, but what comes to my mind is like, we're still expanding roads and getting ready for more cars. And I'm wondering if just say that is like the general value that we need to reduce cars on the road. Does your organization have a part to play in pushing that value or does that sort of impetus have to come from a different uh, body? No, that's a good question. And no, I think our organization has a really big, a really big part in that. Um, and I think what, to the EV question we talked about earlier, I think that the problem with EVs, right, is that 
for, for us, there's still vehicles on a road. You know, they, they're basically the same size. Some of them are actually heavier than the new buses we have are much heavier than the old buses because the, the electric, um, the batteries and such. But, but so for us, it's really in, in that, in those terms, you know, we're still building because we actually are seeing, you know, the volume is about the same or slightly increasing every year because Iowa City is increasing. Our vehicle miles traveled per person, I don't think is really up and it hasn't been, I think, for quite some time. It just, Iowa City is a growing community. Um, so I guess in those terms, we're still building the way we have been just because we're still going to have vehicles. Now, the part that we play, I think, as, a, as an organization is that we are pushing uh, alternative modes of transportation, right? So we're, we're help pushing uh, transit and transit ridership and funding uh, buses and that sort of thing. Um, we're building roundabouts, right, and doing those things to try and reduce emissions and, and increase traffic flow and reduce congestion. Uh, I would say that probably 90% of the trails in and around the metro area uh, are funded through the MPO. So I've been here 17 years, and about 17 years ago, um, there was a big push to start using MPO funds for trails. And since that time, I'm happy to say that, I mean, largely our off-street trail network has been built out, and it's really pretty impressive. Um, and then now we're sort of looking on street and that's why you've been seeing uh, a lot more bike lanes pop up. Uh, you've been seeing the green bike boxes at some intersections we've been installing and that sort of thing. So, so I think we do have a big, um, a, a really big part to play in it. Now, our organization is also directed by a board of, of elected officials. So we take our direction from them, but I mean, I think they would all agree that organization is a big part to play in this. You know, we're putting money uh, into the projects and, and programs we think are most valuable to reduce emissions and reduce traffic congestion and those sorts of things. So I think we have a huge part to play in it. Um, but again, we still take our marching orders from, from the elected officials. So. so to the extent that they're involved in it, then we want to be involved in it as well. It matters who we elect. Correct. Correct. Assuming we have a symbiotic relationship, what in, in your dreams, what could we ask of you that would be beneficial to you and what can you provide to us that would be beneficial to uh, the direction that we're going? I, I think what we can provide to you, that's probably the easier one, um, is data. And I don't know that we have any data that Sarah already doesn't have, but um, we're constantly collecting data, right? Because I think to one of the questions earlier, I mean, everything we do is data driven. Um, and everything we do is really um, textbook driven as well. Like, you know, when, when you're installing a traffic signal or roundabout or building a trail, none of these things don't come with uh, guidance, right, for how many for how many vehicles you should have and how to design them and all those things. Um, so I think for what we can provide to you, it's probably data and in the transportation planning world, maybe our knowledge of what is best for the environment. I think what is most friendly in terms of our infrastructure. Um, for what I would ask of you all, it would probably be to maybe, dis I didn't come prepared for this one, but maybe to discuss uh, and push your goals and objectives onto probably the elected officials like we were just talking about um, because and, they can and which they ones which ones specifically are more <laughs> important to you now, I'm not going to answer that one now you're just trying to get me in trouble no I just want to know uh, when you wake up in the night uh, what do you what do you wish you could accomplish so, so I'll give you I'll give you an example I'll, and then I'll stop <laughs> I'll stop at that but so right now our organization uh, we just got a contract underway for a bus rapid transit study and some of you may see it in the paper in the last two to three weeks, there was an article. Um, so years ago about, let's see, it would have been about 2019 or so, pre-pandemic, we actually were looking at the Crandic uh, 
rail line between North Liberty and basically South Iowa City to reintroduce passenger rail. Um, we did a three-part study. It was sort of, uh, if we make it through part one, we'll move to part two and on to part three. Uh, we got a price tag, about $55 million or so, to actually implement a really good passenger rail service between uh, essentially North, North Liberty, and South Iowa City. Um, and $55 million is a lot of money, but in transportation planning world, it really isn't. Uh, the, the 8380 interchange was somewhere around 350 to $400 million just for one interchange. So uh, I always tell people to introduce a brand new transportation mode that could be wildly successful you know, a $50 million price tag with a $5 million per year operation cost is actually pretty cheap in the scheme of things. Um, so I guess to your question, you know, now we're moved on into bus rapid transit, and there's some different reasons for that. One is Crandick said they really no longer wanted to operate passenger rail. Just their own operations changed during the pandemic and just kind of a shift in focus. Uh, and we asked them, okay, what if we would essentially pave over your rail and run buses up and down that same line as a bus rapid transit service? And they said, if it's good for the community, go for it, study it, and then we'll, you know, we'll respond accordingly. But they were open to that. So, and I will say, and I'm not trying to pick on uh, the different communities, but again, trying to get to your question is that some of the communities begrudgingly even helped fund the study. Right, so we, we split that up. This is an MPO study, so we split that up amongst the different jurisdictions. And there was a few jurisdictions that, it was a $25,000 ask for a $250,000 consultant study, and they really didn't even want to kick in the $25,000. So um, again, I think any influence that this commission has for you know, moving those kind of consultant studies forward, you know, sort of looking out of the box a little bit, and to some of your comments earlier tonight, I think before I started speaking, just you know, the awareness of how important these things are then in turn helps our organization get things done and, and sort of push the ball forward a little bit. Well, I think that other community thing is really important, uh, and I apologize for restating this, but I guess I'm the only one left, is that right, from the original group that started? Matt Krieger as well. I, uh, my dream is that we would do such a bang-up job that we would be emulated by other communities. And so you were talking about other communities, and uh, I, I, I'm looking for a way to accelerate what our success. And I think the biggest success we could achieve is to have a lot of other communities emulate what we're doing and make your job easier relative to tying things together. And sure. the joke is, God, I hate to say this, 70 years ago, I used to ride the Grandic with my grandfather from Cedar Rapids to Iowa City to go to football games. So now we got something that was alive and well 70 years ago that we're talking about right. today. Right. That somehow in between we lost because the automobile was so important to everyone. Right. Well, and one of the things I would offer to anyone in this group or anyone in the public is to actually come to our policy board meetings. Uh, we have a policy board just like you all do. Uh, we meet about eight or eight to nine times a year, um, but it is a room full of elected officials, uh, no less than one or two from each community. So to the extent that it's helpful for anyone in the public or certainly this commission to send a member or send Sarah with a message to, that all the other communities should hear, uh, our door is always open. That's an easier target than the Iowa State Legislature. So <laughs> right, right. I, I like that yeah. as, as a intermediate target. So thank you for sharing that. Sure thing. Is the data that you have available publicly to people? Like saying, hey, we've increased traffic exponentially. Here. Yes, all of our data would be public. Yep. Okay. Any, any study we do, any 
any accounts we do, it's all public information. Yep. And it's shared with the state as well. I would say an example of uh, MPO data that we tap into are those traffic count studies. In fact, this comes full circle in our discussion of greenhouse gas inventories. Um, one, of the, one of the tools we looked at um, to eval evaluate for use in our office was uh, Google has started producing some environmental data. And they had proposed a greenhouse gas inventory for Iowa City. And when we took a look at it, it was wildly different from our own greenhouse gas inventory, which we know from third-party verification to be pretty accurate. Um, and so we actually, <clears throat> Danny and I ended up talking with folks at Google to try to figure out why the numbers were so different. And one of the things we discovered is that for their transportation data, what they do is track the miles traveled by Android phones. And they know roughly the percentage of uh, residents in the US who have an Android phone. So they extrapolate outward and use that to come up with their vehicle miles traveled. Um, and then they use that to calculate the emissions data or estimate what the emissions would be for all those uh, vehicle trips. Well, the thing about an Android phone is that um, it doesn't know if it's being carried by a semi or a scooter, right? But because the traffic count data is more detailed and allows for vehicle class, our transportation data is a little more accurate because we can dial in the emissions associated with a heavy truck versus a light duty vehicle. Um, and so in addition to making their data publicly available, they contribute to state level data sets that end up being very useful for us as well. There are other ways that Google data was off, but I'll save that discussion for another time. Did they fix it? No. <laughs> That's why we don't use it. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, well, Kent. Thanks, everyone, for your time. And like I say, I share a wall with Sarah. So to the extent we can be helpful, uh, always happy to come back. And our policy board door is always open as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We actually have time for visioning. <laughs> um, so we're going to start the process today. We've got 25 minutes. It's OK if we don't finish. Um, I'm going to give you a little overview of what we're going to do. We'll be carrying this discussion forward again next month. Um, Today, we're talking primarily about land use and transportation, which is great. They often go hand in hand. It's hard to envision a city block that doesn't have a street connected to it. Um, next month, we'll be looking at waste to shade in that a little and resource management. Um, but I think it's perfectly legitimate to carry some of the discussion today over into that because I think in some ways, there's less to envision for waste management, right? I think that's the theory at least. Um, so I just want to give you a little overview before we start sketching things out um, and say, first and foremost, the reason we have visioning exercises, and this is co a common tool used um, for city processes across the board, is that it helps us steer the course that uh, we're aiming toward. Um, often we know 
success by the way it looks and feels in the community more so than a report that's generated, right? Like, you know that we're succeeding at climate action because of the way the community feels, hopefully more so than, or at least the theory goes, than you do because we give you a report saying, look at all these wonderful programs we're rolling out month after month. Um, our intention for today is to ground ourselves in the climate action plan. So I do want to emphasize this, that um, our job is not to reinvent the plan, but to really think about the um, 60 plus actions that we have outlined and think about if we're successful in implementing all these different programs and measures, what does the resulting community look like? Um, in this way, it very much parallels, um, we're actually using the same process that was used with city council when they developed their strategic plan, where they began with visioning and then drilled down from there. Um, I do wanna say we wanna remember both mitigation and adaptation, right? So not just what does the community look like as we draw down emissions, but also what does the community look like as we're prepared for a hotter and wetter future? Um, and it's also worth saying it is okay if there's something important in your vision that doesn't change the landscape. I think insulated houses is a great example, right? We know from the EPA, nine out of 10 houses are need to be better insulated. Um, if we achieve that, walking down the street may look exactly the same, but we can still note it in our vision. Like, you know, we walk down the street knowing only one out of 10 houses still needs to be insulated, for example. And we're gonna do this on multiple timeframes. We're gonna start with 2050, so the end of our, um, our goal period where we achieve zero emissions and then drop back to 2030 because I think sometimes it's easier to think long-term and then try to think of what's the half measures to get us there. Um, I mentioned already that we're likely to carry over until next month. Uh, we're starting with our actions and working toward the vision. And again, the guiding question is, what does success look like and feel like as we're in the community? And so what we're gonna do is um, we have scrap paper in front of you and pens in case anybody would like to write. Um, if you've brought some prepared notes, that would be great. But we're gonna go through different sections of the community and I'm just gonna ask four guiding questions for each of them and give you a little time to write and then we'll share as a group. Um, and if it's okay with you on the scrap bits of paper in front of you, we'll collect those up at the end of this discussion to complement the notes that Danny and Megan and Diane are going to be keeping. All right. And when we have the discussion, Danny and Megan are gonna pop up and be noting things down on these giant pieces of white paper. So we'll take all the little tidbits away this month and we'll type up a sort of codified vision that we'll bring back for further refinement next month. Does that sound explicable? All right, John. And again, I'm being redundant, but my first thought is Yes, we accomplish everything. It's amazing. It's amazing what we look like. And what I'm hoping is we're not an oasis in a desert. The rest of the state of Iowa, the rest of the United States, the rest of the world sitting right where they are right now. I'd like to think that good things are going to happen to us in Iowa City, but my vision goes beyond that. How are we impacting other communities to grow and and capitalize on what we've learned and emulate on what we're doing and go from beyond Iowa to beyond the United States to, to the world. 
And the frustrating thing for me is I'll be long dead and gone and I'll never see the results of this. But what I want to know is what the heck can I do to get beyond just making us ideal and having a positive impact on the rest of the country and the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's too much of a stretch, but that's that's my first thought is, yes, I'm, I wanna know what we're going to look like in this vision, but I'd like to see how we're impacting others around the world at the same time. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's too much, but I, it's my first thought. Well, let's dream big. Um, and let's start actually in our own neighborhoods because I think that's often a useful place to start. We're gonna start with our neighborhood. We're gonna think about a neighborhood in another part of the city. We're gonna think about commercial districts and then we're gonna think about industrial areas. And that one might be the trickiest for us because we don't really have many representatives connected with industry here in Iowa City, but we will do the best that we can. So let's start with our own neighborhood. And I want you just for a moment to think about what works currently? Like what about your neighborhood? If you leave your front door and you go walking down the street and you're looking around, what in the built environment and the transportation network, the streets, um, do you think works well and will continue to exist in 2050? And does it continue to exist because it is already helping mitigate greenhouse gas emissions, or does it continue to exist because we have adapted in a way that allows it to continue to exist? When you look around this neighborhood, what kinds of buildings do you see existing? When you look around, what modes of transportation do you see? What kind of vehicles are around you? Which one's dominant? Which one is there a smattering of? Or are they evenly distributed?
In what ways do the buildings you're envisioning help reduce emissions? How are they built to help with that? should have said this to start with. Don't feel like you have to write complete sentences. Just words and phrases work as well. Apologies. Um, and on that level, in what ways are the buildings you see around you in this neighborhood of the future adapted to a hotter, wetter environment? So I was writing what's happening now, but we're supposed to be writing the in the future. <laughs> That's okay. what was now right? yeah we started with what was now I, I was also on that track you're not alone <laughs> I mean it's useful to see what you've crossed out and what carries forward that is still useful feedback and then the same questions for the transportation modes you see around you in in what ways do those transportation modes mitigate emissions? How do they reduce emissions? And in what ways are the vehicles or the street network adapted for a hotter, wetter environment? A street I, adjacent to where I live buckled in like when it was so hot. So it was, I was just thinking. Yeah. <laughs> When you think you're at a good place to discuss all these ideas, you can just put the pen down, and that'll be the signal. This is how organized we are. Danny's going to capture your notes related to transportation, and Megan's going to uh, capture your notes related to land use. So um, who would like to kick us off? Who would like to? Well, actually, let's start here. If you look down at your notes, um, think about what are the three most significant details that you wrote. 
the things that really jump out to you is like, this is what we want in Iowa City in 2050 for sure. And then I think we could go around and each share those three details. All right. Michael, do you want to kick us off? <laughs> I'm still catching up on my false start. <laughs> you want to start with Gabe and we'll circle back? That sounds good. <laughs> um, so the are we listing three or is it kind of like what? Yeah. Um, what stood out to me was safer um, areas, like wider sidewalks, sec more sectioned off bike trails. So wider sidewalks, more, when, can you talk a little more about what you mean by more sectioned off bike trails? Well, like I look at Cedar Rapids and they have like downtown, they have the, the, the buffered bike the lanes, buffered bike lanes and mm -hmm. things like that. I mean, I live where that wouldn't be possible, but you know, thing bike trails instead of having to ride on the street or things. Awesome. Anything for the buildings? Um, I had a lot more solar. <laughs> that was the main thing. And do you see those the solar panels being on the buildings or on canopies or in shared green spaces? Where do you see that solar? Uh, well, shared green spaces because I had more community gardens okay. too. So I was, my, it was kind of, you have a community garden and then a solar aspect in that same area too. Oh, like agrivoltaics at the community gardens? Yeah. Mm. Fun. Also went into rain collection <laughs> on every house <laughs> that they could water their own garden too. John, would you like to go next? Yeah, I see less, uh, less cars parked in my neighborhood because more people are using uh, public transportation. Uh, I, I struggle a little bit with more bicycles because of the seasonal changes and challenges that we have, but certainly walking paths and bike paths enhanced and safe. Um, I see a lot more uh, EVs. I see uh, a lot more energy efficient homes being built and a lot more homes being retrofitted to be more energy efficient. And I see people planting more trees. And are those trees more in people's yards, in the public right of way, the parks, all of the above? Uh, it's like solar, yes. <laughs> Uh, the solar arrays are on houses, the solar arrays are in other areas uh, as deemed appropriate. And I see the same thing with the planting of the trees. People mm -hmm. 
everyone has, except for me, I couldn't plant another tree. It would be ridiculous. <laughs> I don't need to mow my lawn anymore because mm -hmm. I can't get my lawnmower into my yard anymore because of all the trees. But I wish my neighbors would have done the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe strongly in the best time to plant a tree is uh, 25 years ago. <laughs> and that's when I planted most of my trees and mm -hmm. continue to. So I see that as, as a really big thing, both solar trees and EVs and trails and yeah. bike paths. That's Let's put a star next to the trees and the solar as an area to drill down in a bit more. Um, because if we have a whole bunch more trees in the city, it gets difficult to have a whole bunch more solar, right? Yeah, but on your roof. You can. Um, you I, can. I, I see energy sharing with Mid-American or whomever. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think every home in the future should be generating some solar power. Mm -hmm. Oh, great. Matt, would you like to go next? Yeah. Uh, so I guess my theme, whether I planned it or not, ended up being smaller, more appropriate sized <laughs> living. Mm -hmm. uh, so I guess the first thing uh, I was thinking about was, you know, at one point we were talking about like SUVs are bad, we should get smaller vehicles and they kept getting bigger. So in my vision, we uh, people are choosing smaller, more efficient vehicles. Uh, I guess if they are large, they're electric. Uh, same thing with homes. I, I mean, uh, my vision is people are choosing to live in more appropriate, let's, appropriately sized homes, uh, smaller lots, uh, and I guess more climate appropriate yards. I think especially this year, looking around at all the dead yards, it seemed like such a waste that, you know, some yards were flush and green because they're watering them. It'd be nice if it was a yard that was resilient and mm -hmm. you don't need to worry about watering it or keeping it alive. It's too hot. So could you tell us a little more about what you see as being a climate-appropriate yard? Um, obviously, it doesn't need as much watering. Like, what are the plants in that yard? Or is it a, a gravel bed? Or Yeah, I, I guess I'm picturing, like, more prairie-like plants, something that can, you know, survive uh, nothing specific. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I guess one other thing that I heard from both of uh, these guys was wider sidewalks uh, to facilitate more modes of transportation, walking, bikes, and make it easy. You guys are awesome at this. Ben, do you want to go next? Um, yeah. So I had uh, just kind of the generic thing of uh, walkable uh, cities for, like, daily life. Like, if you need a loaf of bread, you shouldn't have to get into a vehicle to go get that loaf of bread. Um, and then more traditional or uh, natural environments built into neighborhoods and that, mm -hmm. which kind of goes hand in hand with water conservation, which so, is my third one. So it sounds like when you're talking about more walkable, you mean not just wider sidewalks, but when you talk about not getting in. Proximity. Yeah, so some more mixed use in the neighborhoods, some commercial presence in around the houses. Right. Okay. Well, everybody's taken all my ideas, I think. I don't have anything that's really new, but I want to emphasize that I really agree with Ben on um, the mixed use uh, in the line of having a park within 15-minute walk. It would be really nice to have a community garden within a 15-minute walk, a grocery store, um, all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to have more concentric living uh, neighbor in neighborhoods. 
Um, lots of renewable forms of energy in housing use and commercial use, I guess, with solar, geothermal, heat pumps, all of the things that are available to us. Um, but passive solar heating works too. Shade trees I really like, of course. Um, for houses, the use of reflective paints or more green rooftops around the city, that kind of thing too, will help um, to make us more resilient. Um, hopefully technology will help us out too with like materials improvements through the years for cement and what the cement that we need and have, uh, things like that. Do you mean cement for houses or cement for streets for or streets, both? For streets. Right, so like cool pavement? Okay. Only new things I had to add. Michelle? Um, so I thought specifically about my neighborhood, and um, my neighborhood is off of Herbert Hoover Highway. And so I envision that it's no longer 55 miles an hour on the road leading to my neighborhood so that we could actually um, leave our neighborhood with bikes and scooters and things like that and um, because that's the only way to get out of our neighborhood with a vehicle. Um, and um, there was a, you know, somebody came in looked at the traffic and said, well, everybody's traveling 55 on this road so we can't change it. And um, anyway, but there's a lot of um, mixed use housing units in my neighborhood and um, lots of kids and lots of 14 year olds learning how to drive. And um, anyway, so I would envision that my neighborhood would be able to be more connected in a, in a way that is, um, <laughs> doesn't require um, vehicles to be able to move around the city. Can I ask on the 55 mile per hour question, one of the things we know from traffic engineering is that people set their speed based on the width of the street more so than the posted signs. Like, and you can think about this in your own experience. If you get on a wider street, it, it tr like cues you to say, this is a wider, more open area, I can go faster. And narrower streets tend to slow people down as do streets that aren't a straight shot, but that weave a little. Um, we've talked about wider sidewalks. Do we think part of this vision is narrower streets? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. I know, like, people will just drive, you know, will pass you when you're slowing down to go into our neighborhood, and it just seems really dangerous. And maybe if it wasn't as wide, they wouldn't think of passing you. I don't know, but um, we have really wide sidewalks there, but um, I don't know. Like, I tried riding a scooter out of my neighborhood, and I was scared. So, I don't know. I think mm -hmm. it would be better if, if, it was, if it was a lower speed, and it would, you know, encourage people to use other kinds of vehicles besides cars. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I think... Narrower streets make sense. And then there's more room for bike paths and other things like that. Um, so we have um, also, it's a new neighborhood, so we have um, an area between houses where, you know, that's supposed to be 
for water collection. And I see that as a place where people could gather and maybe have community gardens and, um, and there would be maybe some trees or things like that. Right now it's just a big open grassy area mm -hmm. that looks like a big bowl kind of. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I think there's a lot of potential for that big grassy area to be you know, community gathering space. Um, and then I see street lights that are responsive to mo movement rather than on all the time. Um, and more solar. <laughs> Wim? Well, this is the fun part about going last, is you guys all gave some great ideas already. I would just uh, second the bike paths being, um, having some separation between the streets and the bike paths. I. There are some areas of town where I would ride more if I didn't think I was going to get hit by a car. Um, the other thing I was trying to think of um, just was in terms of, you know, less cars on the street or uh, smaller houses to live in. And I don't know how well this would go over because Americans like to have their own things. But if, like right now, I can walk to work, my husband walks to work, we only have one car. But if we as a neighborhood had a pool car, and since it would be a neighborhood car, you'd have some ownership over it. Um, so, you know, unlike a zip car where you don't know who's going to drive it next, you'd kind of be held to keeping it nice. That'd be one way to have less vehicles, because right now ours just sits in our driveway a lot at the time. Um, and then the other thing I was thinking with smaller homes is why I have a larger home is so that I can have people come and visit and stay with me and not be on top of me. And maybe it'd be nice to have, like, a communal almost like little bed and breakfast or hotel that you could rent out in your own neighborhood for when your family comes because I don't need a big house all the time mm -hmm. and I certainly don't like cleaning it all the time but but I really would like that space that division mm -hmm. so I was just trying to think of why we have these things we have which are fun but cost a lot <laughs> could we drill just a little and apologies I will say I know we're right at five so we'll try to wrap up fairly quickly um, the question of housing, we've talked about mixed use in terms of having some commercial spaces within the residential areas. Um, the housing that you're envisioning, we've had a reference to smaller housing or more appropriate housing. What does that look like? Is it all smaller houses, but they're still single family homes? Do we see a mix of single family homes and duplexes and quadplexes? Do we see apartment buildings existing in among the single family homes? Can anybody speak to that from their vision? Well, in, in my neighborhood right now, we have a mix of all different kinds and it's, kind, it's cool. We have duplexes, we have small, you know, little tiny homes and larger homes and we have, um, you know, ones where there's like you know townhouses and um not a lot of big apartment buildings but like some of the townhouses are pretty big mm -hmm. so um and it's i think it's um you know makes our neighborhood more interesting so that's something that i really like about the neighborhood and um and you get to know a lot of different people that way too michael you want to round us out Yes, I love a lot of what's been said and like especially 
pooling resources, like pooling cars or tools or having a shared house. We have, we're working on something like that in our neighborhood, we should talk about it. Um, <clears throat> but I think overall the theme for my things are different ways of empowering and like relocalizing power in our community. So one way I think of that is urban food production. And I think we need ways to get food more locally and, and grow food more locally. And that reduces transportation emissions, all kinds of things. And it creates like healthy people and healthy communities. People come together and create the food. They're not so isolated. They're not on their phones all the time. Then there's like fewer mental health issues. This goes on and on. Um, <laughs> urban power production. So things like community solar, but also diversifying power sources and other ways that is really important for adaptation um, as well as emissions. And then um, human scale design of our neighborhood. So we've talked about that in lots of different ways, narrower, more shady streets. Um, walkable neighborhoods with mixed uses. Um, you know, that for me that means having small retail opportunities within, like embedded within residential neighborhoods. Um, not necessarily like, I know some places we have, it could be walkable commerce, but it's kind of in a big parking lot that you drive to. And I, I think we need to see more retail like really embedded in the neighborhoods. Equity, yeah. equity, equity keeps popping up in my mind because I have this vision of this lovely neighborhood and I'm wondering where are the poor people? I'm not being facetious. Yeah. Too. Um, actually, so I'm going to give you a little homework to work on between now and next month and it's breaking my heart. I'm not going to be here for more of this conversation. Feel free to carry it into December. <laughs> um, the next step in this process is to think about this for somebody else's neighborhood and to be aware as you're thinking about that, what looks different in someone else's neighborhood and how does it feel to plan for someone else's neighborhood or to imagine someone else planning for your neighborhood, right? Which I think gets to some of the equity concerns. Um, we're actually gonna, I'll send out the list of questions that we asked today and ask you to think about them after you move from the residential sector to think about commercial areas. And I'd like you to think about two commercial areas, downtown and Highway 6, and to ask yourself, do they start to look more similar or do they continue to look pretty distinct as you're thinking about these different questions? Um, and then we'll ask you to look at the industrial sector. And um, we'll type this up, we'll send it all out to you. It's all on public record now because we've been talking about it. Um, and we'll have you bring your notes to the next meeting so that you can share your high-level points for these other sectors, which we'll record and then continue to refine. Um, as I mentioned, I'm not going to be here uh, for the next one. I'm going to be at the Behavior, Energy, and Climate Change Conference, which I'm very excited about. Um, and we'll have, hopefully, fun things to report on that when I get back. In my place, Danny's going to be running the meeting. And Jeff Fruin, our city manager, will be attending as well. So he'll be listening in on this discussion, which will be great. Um, and then just as a reminder, next, our next meeting is one of the funny meetings that doesn't happen on the first Monday of the month. It's going to happen on November 13th instead. So cool. I think with that, we uh, do you want to call for a motion to adjourn? Yes.
I would like to call for a motion to adjourn. I motion to adjourn. Chatty seconds. All in favor? Aye. 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 We didn't have any discussion. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any discussion on adjourning? No. Okay. Uh, we are officially adjourned at 509. Thanks so much for your discussion today. I really appreciate it.